Good evening, everyone. I'm Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Daniel R. Street. Very glad to see him back on the show. Uh, Daniel, first and foremost, how's it going? Doing great. Doing great. Looking forward to a new year, and there's going to be a lot to write about and talk about, for sure. To say the least. And in case uh, folks didn't see the previous episodes, or maybe they don't remember, uh, explain what it is that you do, and that will set up, obviously, what we're going to chat about. Sure. Well, I'm a uh, practicing attorney, first and foremost. I've practiced law for 27 years, have a civil litigation practice in a state and federal court, and uh, also uh, write about fake news and expose and debunk and refute fake news. And I have a substack where I do write about fake news and I, and I do legal analysis and things like that. So that's kind of everything I have going on in a nutshell. Always interesting to speak with a trial lawyer about matters that relate to the law, because obviously uh, a lot of times when lawyers do talk about this and work at think tanks or they uh, do stuff at universities, and it's better, uh, from my perspective, to chat with someone who has practical knowledge. Well, I appreciate that. I will tell you, I think the I think the lawyers at think tanks and institutional lawyers are probably having more fun than the rest of us are. But, um, you know, I, I always say, we, we wind up with people on the Supreme Court, for instance, who never tried a case. And uh, I can give you a couple of names. Mm-hmm. But um, when, you're, when you practice law and you're an active practitioner, you're kind of in the trenches and you know, um, you know what it means when a judge excludes evidence and what it means when a court doesn't follow the law, what it means when uh, you have to make payroll, all of those things that kind of real world lawyers uh, have to deal with. And so I I like to bring that perspective to bear. Absolutely. It's a very valuable perspective. Uh, It's really the only one I'd find very interesting from a lawyer when talking about any matter that relates to uh, the legal process. And we will get into something uh, which pertains to that. But first, we're going to talk about your most recent book, which is titled Fake News Exposed. This was released, I believe, in November of 2023, and it is subtitled 25 of the Worst Media Lies About Conservatives, Guns, COVID, and Everything Else. Uh, Needless to say, there are quite a few terrible lies, so uh, the top 25, it must have been some difficulty picking them out. Exactly how did you uh, arrive at these being the 25 worst? Well, it, that's a that's a tough question to answer, and I'll tell you why. Because I had I've actually got three or four other books in the works that are at various stages of production, and I I chose those particular chapters for this particular book primarily because of their re- relevancy at the moment, at the time the the book went to to press. That's part of the problem with books. By the time you get the book printed. Some of it's not as timely as you hoped. So most of what went into that book was was put into the book because of its timeliness back in November of uh, 2023. But one thing I wanted to mention, Kato, for uh, your viewers and, and the audience, <clears throat> at my website, DanielRStreet.com, anyone listening to this program can go to the website and they can get the digital version of the book, or if they prefer audiobooks, the audio version of the book we're talking about for free. 
That's outstanding. I was going to say, obviously, you know, they can go to Amazon and find it, but uh, yeah. that, that's it's, it's good that you are distributing it uh, and very generous of you uh, distributing it for free, obviously. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of stuff here that I think people will find interesting. Uh, and one of them, uh, I think, is uh, I mean, the, this this is relevant to what's going on now in the court system, Trump and the Presidential Records Act, which is the yes. third chapter. Uh, it's, uh, the, the, it's, I'm obviously not going to read the whole thing. It would be good if people got the book, but uh, I will just say that the chapter is titled Trump and the Presidential Records Act is the third chapter. And it reads the fake news. President Trump violated the Presidential Records Act and as a result faces consequences, perhaps even criminal charges. And then it said, who pushed the fake news? This is yet another fake news narrative peddled by numerous fake news media outlets. The Washington Post, of course, pushed the fake news with an article on August the 12th, 2022, entitled Violating the Presidential Records Act is no small transgression. And then you go on from there talking about how media sources basically did the same thing. And then you come upon the truth. So explain the truth here. Sure. But the... What's always lost in the translation, and I guess it's really not lost, it's deliberately hidden from people, when uh, the topic of the Presidential Records Act comes up, is that it's up to the president to initially decide is what's a presidential record and what's a personal record. So let, let me back up a little bit and give everybody some perspective. Uh, the Presidential Rec Records Act became law in approximately 1980. Prior to that, or really prior to 1974, uh, a president's records were his personal property. All of the records generated during the president's uh, term of office were his personal property. Mm -hmm. And then Congress passed a law in 1974 having to do during the, the, in the Watergate scandal um, to upset that apple cart and then came back in 1980 and passed the Presidential Records Act. So records generated during the presidency of, of a president. And it's not just records generated by his office, but it's records generated by other agencies for his office are going to be either presidential records or personal records. All right. The determination is made at the, at initially by the president himself or his designee as to what records are presidential records versus personal records. So, when, when these articles were being written, and this all has to do ultimately with the, the indictment in Florida against President Trump, um, <clears throat> the, news, <clears throat> the news media is going around, or the fake news media is going around claiming, oh, President Trump mishandled presidential records and there's all these problems that he's going to go to jail, whatever. And, and the reality is that the president decides what's a presidential record and what's the jury's out on whether or not there's even judicial review of that decision. And that's why the Presidential Records Act is going to figure prominently in the prosecution that the president is dealing with down in Florida in that indictment. His entire legal team says this is a presidential records case and they're right. But um, yeah, so we don't even know right now if a court can second guess the president's determination of what's a presidential record and what's a personal record. Now, I can explain more about that. It gets kind of hyper-technical, but um, there's not, the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in on it. There's one court, the D.C. Circuit has said that in limited circumstances, 
to make sure that the the presidency is not using the Presidential Records Act to avoid Freedom of Information Act obligations, the court can review whether it, a record is a presidential record or an agency record. But that's it. And a couple of courts have implied that you can't even second guess the president. So the end result of all this is this. The president, in this case, Donald J. Trump, gets to decide what's a presidential record. And right now, as it stands, nobody can say anything different. So go ahead. So I was going to say, there is an interesting rule, I think you're probably touching on that, in the D.C. Circuit Court, which is not binding on uh, not binding on the Southern District of Florida, where the case was brought against Trump, but it was held, and this goes back to Bill Clinton, that uh, the president the president can determine which records basically uh, are his and which are not, and then obviously he can do as he wishes with records that he deems to be his. Uh, anything to say about that ruling? Yeah, I think you're, you're you're referencing the the Clinton sock drawer. Yes, where he put the President Clinton put the he, he recorded. President Clinton did recordings or made recordings about discussions he had with foreign leaders and things for purposes of a book or something, and and he and he kept them in a sock drawer, and Judicial Watch filed a lawsuit trying to obtain access to those, claiming they were presidential records, and the federal district court in the D.C. district ruled that, well, you know, the president says what's presidential, what's personal. He said they're personal, so that's it. And, um, yeah, so that that ruling is is good authority for or, or good support for the notion that it's just completely up to the president as to whether a record's personal or presidential because clearly mm -hmm. records about the president's discussions with foreign leaders would be government in nature and they would meet the definition of what a presidential record is under the presidential records act so if the president's able to say yeah but i said it's not a presidential record then uh and that carries the day then obviously that would be helpful to president trump's position and I think I might have said in the D.C. Circuit, it technically is, or I meant to say, as you mentioned, D.C. District Court, and right. obviously that's not binding at all in the Southern District of Florida. It's interesting that Smith chose to bring the charges in the Southern District, uh, which has a far less favorable jury pool, obviously, than D.C., but I'm, probably the ruling, the District Court ruling about the PRA played some role in him deciding to bring the case in another jurisdiction. Well, actually, the uh, the reason that the special counsel brought that particular indictment in in Florida, he he tried to bring it in D.C. The problem is that uh, the United States Constitution requires that uh, a person charged with a crime be charged where the crime was allegedly committed, and the commission of any of these first of all none of it's criminal in the first place i mean we can talk about that but let's just entertain the notion that's that president trump did something criminal in with regard to that florida case all of that happened in florida because president trump would have still been he, he was still technically the president whenever he left washington so uh the the special counsel couldn't bring that case in dc it's fascinating. I mean, it really is. Obviously, all the jurisdictional issues here, uh, and they no doubt will play a role as these trials roll on. Dale, before I get to another chapter, which uh, has nothing to do with Trump, but it, it's very, it, it's also timely. Uh, do you think it's likely 
that Trump's uh, documents trial or his uh, January 6th trial, the documents trial in Florida, obviously the January 6th trial in D.C., you think it's likely either will make it to a courtroom before the presidential election? No. It's, uh, it's as close to impossible for both of those cases as anything could be and not actually be impossible. Mm-hmm. So um, I can elaborate. The, sure, the, the document case down in Florida involves terabytes mm-hmm. of data, including hundreds of thousands of hours of video and copious documents and everything else. It's literally terabytes of data. And I think that most people don't have an understanding of what a terabyte of data is, but it is at one terabyte of data is an enormous amount. And there's terabyte. I think I, I don't want to get it wrong, but there's several, maybe 11. I keep wanting to think that there's 11 terabytes of data. Um, there's just no way that case, in my opinion, goes to trial before uh, the election. There's, there's no way. And then, then you get the other, the other problem is whether or not uh, with all, see, the courts have to take into consideration all of the law, legal entanglements and lawsuits and prosecutions mm-hmm. and things that President Trump's defending in connection with his ability to defend himself in each individual one. So the, the, the court in Florida, and there's case law on this, but the, case, the court in Florida, federal court dealing with that indictment, has to give Trump, the op- President Trump or anybody else, the opportunity to present and wage and mount an adequate and reasonable defense. And since President Trump's got prosecutions going in three other jurisdictions, along with a bunch of other lawsuits that the government has filed and that law, um, you know, like, for instance, the uh, disqualification lawsuits and all those things that the court has to, uh, all of those courts have to make sure he has plenty of time to adequately defend the case. So I think that they all work against each other. And on top of the complexity and the large number of uh, documents in the in the Florida case. Now, the D.C. case is going it, to it's it's tangled up until the United States Supreme Court rules on the presidential immunity. Well, not necessarily the Supreme Court right now. The president filed a, a motion to dismiss the D.C. indictment, saying that he was uh, they can't prosecute him due to presidential immunity. That's at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Oral arguments are on this coming Tuesday. Mm-hmm. The that's the one where the the special counsel tried to vault over yes. the Court of Appeal and ask the Supreme Court to intervene early. That's called uh, requesting certiorari before judgment, and the Supreme Court declined to do that. So, but. That case is stayed until the presidential immunity issue defense is resolved. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, that means <clears throat> it stayed until the Court of Appeal rules and it stayed until the, either President Trump doesn't apply for, for a review by the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court takes the case or rejects the case. So that case is going to be, the DC case is going to be tangled up at least, um, probably at least until March or April at the earliest before they're able to even, if they're able to move forward at all, you know, and and technically it it could be, it could be considerably longer than that, depending on whether the, 
when President Trump's team, when and if they apply for review to the Supreme Court, and then on if the Supreme Court grants it or denies it, and how long it takes for them to decide all those things. So that case is, it's it, first of all, it's going to get gutted anyway. And the other reason for that is because of the uh, the uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 1512 charges. Now, that's another issue that, you know, is really hyper-technical. Let me break it down as simple as I can. Years ago, if you remember the Enron scandal, there were, there were congressional investigations. Those investigations were allegedly, and I think actually, um, impeded or impaired by some of the Enron defendants who got some other people or, or either coerced, ordered, instructed, facilitated, whatever, some other people to destroy some evidence to hinder these congressional investigations. And at the time, federal law prohibited a person from destroying a record to hinder a federal investigation, I mean, a congressional investigation, but not, didn't criminalize getting somebody else to do it. So Congress went and fixed that and plugged that gap. And they, when they did, they included a little catch-all that says, or otherwise obstruction of, uh, obstructs an official proceeding. And for the first time since that, that statute's been around for 20 years, but for the first time it was employed to try to criminalize people who were allegedly trying to stop the certification of the 2020 election by the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. So the United States Supreme Court just granted a review in one of those prosecutions and is going to determine whether or not 18 U.S.C. 1512 can be used in a non-congressional investigation manner. And, um, you know, the overwhelming majority of, well, in my opinion, the overwhelming majority of uh, um, legal scholars and analysts say that the believe the Supreme Court's going to kill those those charges. And that will implicate President Trump's prosecution in D.C. because two of the four charges brought against him are the official obstructing official proceedings charge. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, that prosecution is going to be either totally shut down by presidential immunity or cut, uh, have the leg cut out from under it. Do you think, uh, real dear to Vamp, I just have to ask, do you think that Jack Smith realized stuff like this would be possible from the onset and he just decided to do it anyway because it seems like an incredibly risky prosecution given, uh, number one, the timing of it and obviously the delays that can and are happening. Uh, Smith obviously wants to get this done before the election for political purposes. But then, of course, the Supreme Court uh, narrowing the scope of that obstruction charge. It seems strange that a prosecutor as seasoned as Smith would bring a case like this because of all the variables that could play against him and are uh, at least right now playing against him. What do you think about his perspective here? Yeah, well, um, I can only, I can only give you my opinion of what's going on. I and mean, I can't, I, I, I don't know uh, Smith and uh, never have, have nothing to do with his office or anything else, but um, I don't think any of this has any, this is my opinion. I don't think any of this has anything to do with uh, a successful prosecution. I think all of this was political. I think January 6th was political. We could talk about that too. But um, I, I don't think any of these these indictments have been brought to actually obtain any convictions. I think it was it's all part of a 
uh, you could call it a conspiracy. It's a scheme to try to impair President Trump's ability to win the election in 2024. So uh, these, these, these claims are all What's the word I mean, I'm looking for? They're, they have in every every indictment, mm -hmm. but especially in the two federal indictments, stretched and twist and and massaged the law to try to conjure some charges they can bring. Mm -hmm. And nobody does that. Certainly not in a case like this. You don't you don't stretch and conjure nonsense to try to charge a former president if you're legitimate in my opinion. So I think it's all political. They know they, they know the likelihood of success on the merits of uh, actually convicting President Trump and him having to go to jail is virtually zero. And they knew that from the beginning. But that's not what this is about. It's about uh, trying to stop him from being president again. Well, there's the saying, you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. And I think this is all very clearly about a very rough ride. Yeah, what baffles me is... Um, some of the uh, the never Trump crowd, mm -hmm. and and not just never Trumpers, but some of the, the 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 Republican establishment, who claim that all these indictments were brought to ensure that Trump gets the GOP nomination. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever heard anybody getting indicted to help them win an election. You know, it's just ludicrous. And if anybody wants to know, if you want to know how much the Democrats want to keep Donald Trump from running for president. Mm -hmm. he, look at the lengths they've gone to and, and never Trumpers, Democrats and never mm -hmm. Trumpers. Look at the lengths they've gone to to try to get him off the ballot. If they thought they could easily win the election, would they try to get him off the ballot? Mm -hmm. If if all the never Trumpers who claim that, oh, these indictments are to ensure Trump gets the nomination. If if the Democrats thought they would beat him, I mean, maybe that's true. Right. But if they thought he was going to be easy to beat, why would they try to disqualify him in every state? So they, they want to disqualify Trump because they know that President Trump is the only Republican, particularly right now, and that's that's vying for the Republican nomination, who brings to bear a broad coalition, particularly that, that cuts into their support. The Democrats support President Trump brings voters in and classes of voters in and, mm -hmm. and uh, demographics that other Republicans don't. Uh -huh. And that's what the Democrats are worried about. Well, it, it's interesting because it's really the next article I want, not sorry, not next article, next chapter I want to get to. Uh, but I just have to say, you are from Louisiana. And nowadays, Louisiana is thought of as an overwhelmingly Republican state because it votes that way. But it, it, it even during my lifetime was solidly Democratic, uh, even though it would typically go, although not always go, GOP and presidential races. Uh, and there are still lots of people in Louisiana who you no doubt come into contact with regularly who are cultural Democrats. They're not sold on Republican views about most things, but uh, they will either not vote or vote GOP when Trump is around or other populist Republicans are around as the least worst option. Uh, and a lot of these people, uh, the Democrats obviously would like back, but they can't really do anything to bring them back because they have a new coalition now, you know, you know, uh, you could call it wokeism, you could call it diversity, equity, and inclusion, you could call it this, that, the other thing, identity politics, but the bottom line is that the Democrats 
coalition has shifted. Uh, and so their older voters are not necessarily keen on supporting them, but they still would, you know, the Democrats still want their old uh, supporters back. Uh, and I do think that they see Trump as a major hindrance to uh, their electoral prospects, even though he's said to be unelectable by some people, though they're not saying that much anymore since <laughs> he's uh, doing so well against Biden in public polling, which I'm not a big fan of, but, you know, whatever. So I do think that Trump is, I've always believed, he's much more electable than most people give him credit for. He speaks to a certain type of voter who often goes forgotten, uh, you know, sort of treated as the bastard stepchild. And it's uh, it's interesting that that there is this commotion to get Trump off the ballot, which we will get into later. But that's just my, those are my three cents. <laughs> two cents plus, I think I went a bit longer than uh, just two cents, three cents. Anything to say, Daniel, before we move yeah, on? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, <clears throat> I registered to vote in 1989 as a Republican. I've been a Republican the entire time except since then, except for a short period of time after the 2020 election when I identified as an independent because the GOP establishment made me so angry. All right. But I can tell you that whenever I registered to vote, it was something of a uh, kind of a low key act of protest for anybody here to, to register as a Republican. They just weren't that many Republicans in 1989 in, in Louisiana. Um, but that has changed, and and I think that um, I, I had a conversation with a with a, uh, a close friend of mine just a few days ago about this very issue. He'd been a Democrat his entire life. I'm not going to call him out because I don't know if he would uh, approve. But uh -huh. Democrat his entire life, and he's considerably older than me. And uh, I made fun of him, you know, because what we were talking about some craziness that the Democrats were pushing and. And, uh, and it just gets more and more ludicrous, you know, and and he's just getting really animated and upset about it. And I said, well, you're the one who's a Democrat for 60 years or you know, 50 years. And he goes, yeah, but not anymore. I can't. He, says, he said, I had to change my party affiliation because I was embarrassed to be associated with them. And that's what's happened. They've gone so far off the deep end that people are embarrassed to be associated with them, at least people down here. So you I mean, the the Democrat Party in Louisiana is a, uh, a it's I was going to say it's a paper tiger, but it's not even a paper tiger. It's a it's a it's a paper chihuahua. <laughs> I mean, they can't win anything hardly anywhere in New Orleans. That's it, you know. Yeah, and it's surprising in a way because Louisiana is is a is, is a very diverse state, uh, a historically diverse state. But there is a there are a lot of different groups there. In a lot of ways, it reminds me more of New Jersey or New York than any typical Southern state because you have so many different ethnic groups and racial groups there. And yet, Louisiana has become so much more Republican, especially after the last election cycle, where in the state Democrats basically uh, lost whatever last toehold they had. Uh, it is surprising that Louisiana would be this GOP because look at places like New York and New Jersey and, you know, they're not, but uh, it's, it certainly is the case. Yeah. And, and primarily what's pushing that or what's, what's the force behind that mm -hmm. is uh, there are a lot of religious people in Louisiana mm -hmm. and South Louisiana has a lot of uh, devout Catholic people. And then the rest of the state has a lot of uh, Protestant devout Protestants mm -hmm. and, you know, any, anybody that 
that believes in um in a it doesn't even have to be you don't have to be christian anybody that believes in god uh is feels very unwelcome in the democrat party it just really makes no sense because i know that for instance kato Mm -hmm. i know that you and i have very different uh Uh, religious belief i mean i I think you're agnostic if i recall correctly a secular humanist but please go ahead i'm sorry well I, I, i i didn't mean that as a smear oh no no it's fine yeah and but you know republicans embrace every virtually everybody being in the party not not everybody but you know you never hear or i never hear any religious republicans saying well we don't need any non-religious people in this party you know uh, but the democrats say that kind of thing all the time you know they don't if you believe in the gospel of jesus they don't want you and and so what they've done is run people off and i think that that um, you know, one of the real important challenges for the Republican Party moving forward um, is going to be to maintain that that big tent, everybody's welcome kind of uh, atmosphere. And uh, I, I work hard to do that. I know you do. Uh-huh. Um, there, but there are people who don't, and you see what the you know the the consequences of not having a big tent atmosphere is. Um, you'll wind up like the Democrats in Louisiana. Absolutely. And I'll just say, well, the issue that that is really uh, hurting the GOP's big tent <laughs> prospects, it's not religion. Uh, it, it's obviously abortion. That's the 800 pound gorilla yeah. in the room. Uh, and there are some Republicans who want, you know, absolute abortion advance, nothing else. Nowadays, they're actually are getting less and less because obviously with all these elections, winnable races being lost, uh, it's uh, people are, are taking a more moderate tone. Trump is one of them very prominently. And Ron DeSantis ran against him, as you surely know, as everybody knows, on a hardline anti-abortion platform, which is hugely unpopular here in Florida. Uh, but uh, he did it to win over evangelicals in Iowa in the caucus, who he's going to lose anyway. So the uh, it, it's really not an issue of people being sectarian now. It's just this is abortion issue. But, you know, the people who really, really hate abortion, they would rather lose and have a Democrat be elected who wants to decapitate a newborn uh, rather than a moderately pro-choice Republican who would limit abortion after 12 weeks. It, it, it's a crazy situation, but there it is. Yeah, no, you're right. And and I think that, you know, there. I don't mean to beat up on uh, Governor DeSantis and his presidential campaign, uh, as you and I have talked about before, I think very highly of Governor DeSantis. And I'm really discouraged by what, what happened with, uh, him running for for president now because I consider uh, Governor DeSantis to be one of the the most important uh, Republicans in the future. He was a young man. He really distinguished himself in in Florida, and I think his campaign's been um, well. It shouldn't have shouldn't have been. He shouldn't have ran at all. Mm-hmm. But but then when he went in and moved so far to the right on uh on abortion for instance um and i I think you and i talked about this previously it just made no sense it didn't i mean look look, i get it okay but it wasn't going to work it wasn't going to deliver trump voters to him it just wasn't going to happen you know Mm -hmm. and uh and the thing is that's a very difficult pivot. If you want to, you know, that's what that's what politicians call pivoting. After they get the nomination, I'm going to pivot and be more reasonable. That's a very difficult. 
That's oh, not a dude. That's an about face. And uh, I thought he really, really did himself no favors there. And uh, but look, at the end of the day, I'm one of those people. I know that that, uh, that I think uh, I, I like to think we need more Republicans like me. I mean, I'm pro life, but I can tell you right now. I mean, if you're a Republican and you're running somewhere and and your electorate's pro-choice, then you got to be pro-choice. I mean, because first of all, the, the a politician is supposed to represent his constituents. And if your constituency is pro-choice, then that's just the way it is, you know. And uh, I think that people have kind of lost sight of the forest for the trees and think that we're better off if we if we let uh, moderate Republicans lose. There's a difference, a big difference, very important difference between a moderate Republican and a never Trumper. We, I think we need to purge the never Trumpers mm -hmm. myself. But but moderate Republicans are, are probably more important to the future growth of the party than anybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, obviously, it's because they can win in areas that the GOP needs, swing areas. I guess I would fall under that label uh, of, of the moderate Republicans you're talking about. But also, it's important because they adapt to new situations well, whereas others do not. Uh, and Ron DeSantis actually governed as a fairly moderate Republican, uh, a definitely a conservative one, but not one that was over the top about anything. That's why he won re-election so convincingly. He did broadly popular things in his first term. But then he decided he wanted to run, or actually decided he wanted to run for president in 2020, or his wife decided for him, who really knows. But uh, it was decided that he'd be running for president uh, in 2024. That came out in 2020. And so for his second term, which he was elected to in 2022, actually starting a bit before that, but really after he won re-election, he went out on a limb with all these unpopular ideas. And there has been a backlash, of course, to his abortion stance, uh, the amount of uh, petition, uh, the amount of people who supported the petition to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot uh, later this year to have abortion up to 24 weeks. Uh, the, the number was reached as long as the Supreme Court doesn't strike the ballot language down. Uh, the amendment is going to happen. Uh, and I, as I've said, I signed the petition myself, uh, in part because I support the cause, but also in part because Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a way to get him back on the reservation, I think, to have his ideas fail without the Republican Party failing. Actually, this will be good for the GOP because this issue will be uh, resolved, at least in Florida. And a lot of Republicans signed the petition uh, as well. It wasn't just me. So the abortion issue can be resolved, as you've seen in Ohio, as I'm sure we'll see in other places, perhaps even Arkansas this year. I think it could be as many as 12 places this year, 12 or 14 uh, states, I mean, when I say places. Uh, so the GOP just needs to let this be resolved at the state level. And uh, taking a stance on it federally is a bad idea. Uh, and I think that eventually the issue uh, it will be like water. It seeks its own level and that people will move on. Yeah. And I, and I think that you made an observation earlier about the, the moderate approach that President Trump's taking. I think, I think with respect to, to the presidential race, it's the right uh, it's the right tone and the right approach. And I liken it uh, to to guns. Uh -huh. All right. Because I'm a I'm a very staunch Second Amendment guy, uh -huh. and I believe in the right to bear arms. But if you, you know, if you've got a guy running in New Jersey and um, you got a, the Democrats, a fire hate, you know, a fire breathing gun hater, 
And the Republicans are, hey, I support the Second Amendment, but maybe we need to do this or that. You know, I want the Republican, I'm going to support the Republican, even though he might support some gun control that I'm not in favor of. You know, and, and I think that's the, the, the mentality that people need to take um, just kind of across the board, whether, whether any, without regard to the issue, uh, other than, you know, like some of the people trying to normalize pedophilia or something. Yeah, that's, that's, that's ludicrous. But, <clears throat> you know, it, it'll play out. I think that a lot of Republican candidates were hurt by the, uh, by the abortion issue over the last 18 months or so. And so hopefully more people are, are refining their approach to that and, uh, and we'll deal with it um, more appropriately. I sure hope so, because the issue has to be resolved because it's just too damaging. It's like uh, it, it's kind of like a cancer at this point for the Republican Party. It just that there has to be some form of chemotherapy for it. And that obviously means that in a place like Louisiana, there are going to be different abortion laws than what would find in Florida, let alone right. you know, New York. But that's fine. Uh, you know, people can do what they want to do. Um, I don't know if there is the possibility of a statewide referendum on abortion uh in louisiana or any issue do you, do you have publicly do you have referenda that you vote on we do not we do not have a, a ballot initiative referendum procedure yes, yeah. um we vote on constitutional amendments but you know louisiana is a state where um republicans are going to be if they're going to win they're going to be pro-life sure absolutely and you know i think what a lot of what a lot of pro-life republicans people who are like me lose track of then a lot of these other states like for instance if you go to wisconsin or you go to mm -hmm. to oregon you know republicans there are fiscal conservatives mm -hmm. and more socially moderate mm -hmm. you know and th those are those are the so the socially moderate republicans are the ones that that we need to uh in in a lot of jurisdictions we need to appeal to not just socially moderate uh, Republicans, but just socially moderate people in order to win an election. Absolutely. And, yeah. So, you know, abortion is a non-starter here. If a Republican came out and said, I am pro-choice, well, he's not going to win. <laughs> I can tell you that. But <clears throat> that's this uh, demographic. Absolutely. And one last question, finally, before we move on, it's not about uh, abortion, really. It's about, uh, in Louisiana, New Orleans, Orleans Parish, uh, you know, that's the Democratic Citadel. Uh, obviously, up in Shreveport, they did elect a Republican mayor, uh, which was big news. Uh, do you think there's any possibility that the GOP can have any sort of serious presence in Orleans Parish going forward? Or is that completely a lost cause, like, say, Philly is to Pennsylvania? Yeah, that's a lost cause. That's, uh, you know, there aren't that the, the city of New Orleans is probably I haven't looked at the, the demographics lately. It's maybe 20 percent Republican. Uh -huh. Maybe. Um, yeah, I think it's a dead letter. You know, the the really difficult part is I've watched the city of New Orleans decline in my lifetime. And, um, you know, it used to be a really vibrant and. I mean, it always had some big city problems, but um, it has gone downhill. I mean, I know so many people, they won't even go down there now. And, and just so you're to let your audience know, I live about 30 miles from Arkansas. So I'm way at the northern part of the state. So when people people here talk about uh, 
going to New Orleans and talk about going way down to New Orleans. <laughs> so there's a lot of people just won't go anymore. And it's so dangerous and, uh, you know, people doing drugs everywhere. And it's, it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but it's not going to change anytime soon. That's a shame. This is a beautiful city with a hell of a lot of history. Uh, it's it's sort of like the southern version of New York City, or at least old New York City. But uh, it's it's just it's terrible. But what's happening to New Orleans certainly is happening in a lot of other places and a lot of other states. Anyway, moving on to chapter six of your book, which of course is titled "Fake News Exposed." You told folks where they can find it for free on your website, DanielRStreet.com. Is that right? That's correct. Great. Chapter six, Florida con migrants to fly to Martha's Vineyard. Background. This is another story related to the ongoing national disaster at this country's southern border. Readers will recall the first chapter dealt with the border crisis. Some of the same background will inform readers of this chapter. After Joe Biden was installed as president of the United States, he acted swiftly in January 2021 through executive orders to reverse the Trump administration's border policies. Biden halted deportations and suspended the Remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers and stopped construction of the border wall. Biden's actions created a literal disaster at the U.S. border with Mexico. During the Trump administration, U.S. Border Patrol encounters of illegals at the southern border fluctuated with 303,619 apprehended in 2017, 396,579 in 2018, 851,508 in 2019, and 400,651 in 2020. After the Biden regime dismantled much of Trump's border policies, the number of migrants apprehended at our southern border exploded in 2021 to over 1.6 million, beating the previous record set in 2000. The Biden regime's disastrous policies keep fueling the crisis with 2022 apprehensions of illegals at the border, blowing away the previous year's record with a total of 2.4 million illegals and other migrants apprehended. Skipping down a bit, you say the fake news. Venezuela migrants were tricked into flying from Texas to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts as part of an inhumane, cruel, and potentially illegal program operated by the state of Florida. Who pushed the fake news? This is another story covered by multiple fake news outlets. A review of the few fake news reports will prove illustrative. The Washington Post ran its version of the story on September the 25th of 2022. Mysteries, legal challenges follow Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's migrant flights. Uh, and you mentioned that in this article, the Washington Post claimed a woman named Perla, who worked for on behalf of the state of Florida, trolled for the migrants on the streets of San Antonio, promising food, jobs, or transportation. The article claimed the migrants were given waivers to sign printed partially in English and and did not realize where they were going until a few minutes before landing, when the pilot came over the intercom and announced they were landing in Martha's vineyard. Uh, and you also say in typical fashion, Democrat politicians, including California Governor Gavin Newsom, call for federal investigations of the migrant flights. See the political article titled Dems Push DOJ to Probe DeSantis Over Migrants, but there's no easy legal answer. Now, skipping down a bit, you say the truth. What was the truth? <laughs> this is one of the just the most horrible uh, misinformation campaigns the media has gone into what what the Florida did and, and another thing that frustrates me is when they say Governor DeSantis Governor DeSantis didn't do anything 
the state of Florida did something, you know, which was pursuant to statutory law passed by the legislature. Okay. And <clears throat> what they did is they went over to, to uh, uh, San Antonio, the San Antonio area, and they printed up um, these flyers in Spanish. And so ultimately, and, and, and they uh, chartered some planes. It was either two or three. I think it was two planes. And they chartered them and they flew the people to Martha's Vineyard. All right. The people come to find out, despite all the fake news, the people knew where they were going. They knew when they were going. And they knew why they were going. And they, they had maps that they were given that showed them where they were going. And everything was explained in, in their native tongue. Mm -hmm. And most of the people were were on the street. Most of the people they, they weren't they didn't have anywhere to live. Mm -hmm. And the state of Florida gave them um, like ATM cards that had money on it, so they could go stay, put them up in a hotel, and they could eat. They could go use the ATM cards anywhere to eat, and and uh, you know buy clothes with and everything. So. Really, what happened was the uh, the state of Florida just flew some folks. It was around fifty people flew into Martha's Vineyard, and Martha's Vineyard can handle two hundred thousand tourists with money during the tourist season. But they flipped out over over fifty people from Venezuela and, uh, and called in the National Guard and took the people to Joint Base Cape Cod on the mainland. And uh, and all of that. So it was all misinformation about um, you know this con job. Nobody was conned in anything. And uh, so, but one of the reasons I included this particular story was to make a couple of illustrations. One is that the media does the same thing to Governor DeSantis that they do to President Trump. You just don't see it as much. There's also another chapter in this book about the "Don't Say Gay" law. Mm -hmm. Down in yep, we'll get to that in a minute. Massive mis misrepresentation propaganda campaign. And for those uh, DeSantis supporters who say, you know, President Trump's got too many investigations. Here, there was an investigation of, of uh, the state of Florida by the Bexar County Sheriff in uh, San Antonio. It's I don't know what the end result was. But at last I checked a few months ago, it was still going on. And numerous different uh, politicians, for instance, I've referenced in the article, the governor uh, of California, Gavin Newsom, called for a federal investigation of the state of Florida's use of CARES Act proceeds to see if there was a misapplication or misuse of CARES Act, which was federal funding for these flights. So all of that is to uh, gen up lawfare and problems for the governor of Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, so th the important thing for people to remember is that the Democrats have, have they, they see this, they think what they're doing to Trump is working. That's why they're using it against other Republicans like Representative Scott Perry and all of the people they're charging with uh, in, in Michigan and in Georgia with over the, um, the alternate electors, slates of electors, those are Republicans. And and uh, they're not going to stop. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the nominee is. They're going to do the same thing.
And uh, that's the other reason, one of the other reasons I included that chapter. Absolutely. You make a very good point. Uh, last I heard in San Antonio, the sheriff made a criminal referral to the district attorney's office, but the district attorney uh, has not filed any charges. And if he hasn't filed them by now, it's pretty unlikely that he will. Uh, I, I think that I have no doubt that the, he found the sheriff, who's a Democratic activist, found some absurd reason to uh, charge DeSantis, but it just wasn't worth it in the end because by the time the investigation was handed to the DA's office, DeSantis was already like you know subterranean at subterranean polling levels regarding trump so going after desantis wouldn't make any sense for the democrats at this point but if he were if he were the republican front runner he would have been indicted on however ridiculous grounds in sacramento uh in san antonio probably some federal case as well i mean it, it, the democrats are doing this because they can and because they think it will benefit them as you said although thankfully it has not dented trump's polling numbers as a matter of fact it's helped him along uh but you know the democrats still seem to think it's a good strategy maybe it's just to add desperation uh who the hell can really say but there is another article you bring, uh, not, I keep saying article, another chapter that you wrote, uh, in chapter seven, titled Illegals Commit Less Crime Than Americans. Of course, it's a question that you write, uh, and uh, the answer is interesting. The fake news, illegal immigrants do not commit crimes to any significant extent, and certainly not as frequently or at the rate that American citizens commit crimes. Who pushed the fake news? This is another one of those fake news narratives pushed by virtually every legacy media outlet in existence. The Washington Post promoted this narrative with an article published on June 19th, 2018. Two charts demolished the notion that immigrants here illegally commit more crime. Of course, you write, one may count on the New York Times to promote this fake news, as it did in this article from January 26, 2017. Contrary to Trump's claims, immigrants are less likely to commit crimes. You also wrote that the New York Times doubled down on the issue on May 13, 2019, with another article titled, Is There a Connection Between Undocumented Immigrants and Crime? You also mentioned that Scientific American weighed in on this topic on December the 7th, 2020, with this article, Undocumented Immigrants Are Half as Likely to Be Arrested for Violent Crimes as U.S. Born citizens. Uh, you wrote that there are countless more similar stories, but hopefully the point is made. Skipping down, you mentioned the truth. What is the truth, Daniel? Well, this is another one of those issues where um, there's, a, there's a paucity of data. So we don't know for absolute certain. And the reason for that is because sanctuary jurisdictions do not compiled data on illegal immigrant crime. Mm -hmm. Okay. They bury that data. They won't share it. They won't compile it. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't share most sanctuary. In fact, virtually all sanctuary jurisdictions wouldn't share arrests of undocumented people or illegals with uh, the federal immigration authorities. So mm -hmm. the, the, the real issue is there aren't, there aren't enough places where this data is being compiled, but, the evidence that we do have uh, leans very heavily towards illegals being engaged, engaging in much more crime than, than Americans do, than American citizens do. So <clears throat> to give you a couple of, for instances, um, and, oh, and another thing to keep in mind is that entering this country illegally is a crime. Staying here after you enter illegally is a crime. Working here if you've entered illegally is a crime. There's, there's a host of crimes. I cover them all in 
in the uh, in the chapter that just being here and staying here, a, a person who's done that and they're here illegally are are violating a host of federal laws just by being here. So the myth of the law-abiding illegal immigrant, there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. It's a myth because they're violating the law repeatedly every day just by staying here. So and most Americans aren't doing that, you know, mm-hmm. and certainly not those laws, obviously. But um, <clears throat> so there's there is some data. It's been compiled by in a number of different ways. But for instance, federal the Federal Bureau of Prisons keeps up with and maintains data on the immigration status of the people in its custody and illegal aliens are grossly overrepresented by a multiplication factor of about five in the uh, federal prison population. So what I conclude at the end of, uh, of that chapter after looking at all of the data is that the overwhelming majority of the data demonstrates that illegals commit more crime than Americans, and they certainly commit more violent crime than Americans. And also give a couple of breakdowns. Most most of those uh, articles in the fake news section of that chapter are based off of a couple of studies. Um, And I outline how those studies uh, are just uh, inaccurate or unreliable. So at the end of the day, we don't know for certain. So I can't look people in the eye and say it's absolutely 100% chiseled in stone that illegals commit more crime, more violent crime. Um, Obviously, they commit more crimes just in general because just being here every day is illegal for about five different reasons. But with respect to violent crime, I can't say it's chiseled in stone. But the overwhelming likelihood is that illegals commit considerably more crime than American citizens do, violent crime. I'm not at all surprised, but obviously you read the studies which show some to the contrary, and it flies in the face of common sense, but so many other things do as well. Very glad you went over this. Unfortunately, don't time to get to nearly everything, but I'll get to two more. Uh, The uh, next one, actually, this is going back a bit. Uh, It's titled, Don't Say Gay, and it's uh, written as as a question. Uh, The background, an age-old, time-honored trick of the fake news media, Democrat Party, and the left generally is to grossly mischaracterize something, a speech, an event, a photograph, or in this case, a bill or law, and then viciously attack and endlessly lie about that something and anyone associated with it. This particular fake news tactic is used, then washed, rinsed, and repeated over and over again. The tactic was on full display when the fake news media, left and Democrat politicians and operatives attacked a bill working its way through the Florida legislature in early 2022. In their vociferous yet vain and useless attacks on the bill, the fake news media and Dem activists dubbed it the don't say gay bill. Let's look at what happened. The fake news, a law passed in Florida in 2022 titled called the Parental Rights and Education Bill, was dangerous, homophobic, and transphobic propaganda, which would prohibit teachers from saying the word gay. Who pushed the fake news? Virtually the entire fake news media, the Democrat Party apparatus, went utterly bonkers over the bill. The Washington Post published an article quoting various Democrat politicians and leftists making all manner of radical claims. 
Skipping down a bit, uh, you mentioned a headline from the Washington Post. Biden calls Florida bill restricting LGBTQ discussion in schools hateful after DeSantis signals support. You write that Time Magazine published an article on May the 12th of 2022 claiming the bill is part of a shameful history. In an article published on March 24th, 2022, the New York Intelligencer claimed the bill would cost teachers their jobs just for saying something about going to a Pride event in New York City. Worse still, the article claim the bill endangers the lives of children who are gay because their counselors are required to out the kids to their parents. And uh, you mentioned, uh, skipping down to the CNN, ramped up the attacks with an opinion piece by the executive director of a crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ youth who called the bill cruel and dangerous. Uh, and uh, skipping down a bit more, uh, you say, for weeks, the fake news media was in overdrive, running one article after another, making similar hyperbolic attacks on the simple common sense change in Florida law, from claiming the bill would have a chilling effect on teachers to claiming the bill would harm mental the mental health of children, that it would cause increases in teen suicide, would make Florida dangerous for LGBTQ youth, to claiming the bill was literally child abuse, the left pulled out all of the stops to try to stop the bill from becoming law. Their efforts were unsuccessful. And then you get to the truth. So what is the truth here, Daniel? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> the uh, the Florida law uh, at, at issue in this chapter does not prohibit anybody from saying gay. It doesn't prohibit a teacher from talking about their vacation. Um. All, this is all it does, really, and at, at the end of the day, is, quote, this is the, the pro provision at issue that caused all the so-called controversy, quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards, close quote. The the media, the the president, the or I call the man occupying the White House currently, and his uh, press secretary said they all said this was dangerous and hateful, and what what kind of person wants teachers teaching kindergartners about sexual orientation, you know? These people are so far off the res. This, this is a good illustration of how radical the media is because there's no reason for a teacher or anybody else at a school to be pushing sexual orientation and transgenderism on five-year-olds. This law says they can't do it. That's it. The teacher could be as gay as they want to be. They just don't get to push sexual orientation on on five to eight year olds, in my opinion, and there's actually an article on this that I quote <clears throat> that uh, it doesn't go nearly far enough because this law just stops them from doing that to five to eight year olds. Well, they don't need to be talking to eight year olds either, or I mean, nine year olds either about sexual orientation or trans transgenderism, you know? So what this was all really about <clears throat> is the left wants to be able to indoctrinate your, your children and they don't want you to be able to stop it. And this law gave parents a cause of action to go to court 
and get get a court to make the teacher stop if they're violating. So if your if your six year old came home and says, uh, "My teacher's saying that uh, I'm, uh, you know saying the kid's name is Jim and he's a little boy," and he's, my teacher says my name should be Sue, and is telling me all this stuff about being transgender and stuff, that parent can go to court because of this law and stop it. And that's what the left and the media were really in a twist about is parents having the right to stop them from indoctrinating people. And that's really what the truth is. And then, and then the other thing, the reason they were saying they were it would endanger people <clears throat> is because if a child started talking about uh, being gender confused or something, they, they say that the, the, the critics of the law said, oh, they got to go tell the parents because the law does require that parents be kept reasonably informed about developments with their children. But there's a specific exemption that says if if the uh, parent, I mean, if the counselor or teacher <clears throat> or school administrator has a reasonable belief that it would endanger the child if the parents were told there's a procedure they had to go through to avoid doing that. So it actually dealt with that, <clears throat> that precise problem and put a mechanism in place where the administration could try to shield or could shield that information from a parent, but, but it also required them. It wasn't, it doesn't allow them to just make that declaration and nobody gets to say or do anything about it. See, so, uh, because if they, if that were allowed, then every one of the fascists that they've got in, uh, teaching people, teaching little kids in Florida would just say, Oh, well, we didn't, we don't have to tell anybody because it would endanger. So, it actually created a procedure and a process that you have to go through in order to uphold that claim. And so what this was really about was parents having the ability to stop radical leftist. In my opinion, I would say most of them would be probably groomers or predators from grooming their kids. That's what, that's what the Florida law is about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't think, I mean, I can't, it, I've had this conversation with a few people that are, that claim to be liberals. And once I made them read about it, they're all just flabbergasted. They've been lied to by the media like that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, I'm a very socially moderate person, but I never saw any issue with not discussing certain things with kids uh, in school uh, and certainly teachers not coaching the kids into believing they are something at a very impressionable age. What I find interesting, and I'm a generation younger than you, but when I was in the school, I'm sure it was the same as when you were in school, there was nothing at all in the way of people being confused about their uh, about their gender or their sex or anything like that. There were always people who were uh, non-heterosexual, but it, it, the whole thing about a boy not knowing if he's a boy or a girl, this is a very new phenomenon to any <laughs> serious degree. I mean, it's not like some problem that was written about thousands of years ago by the Greeks and it's been uh, you know, uh, going on ever since just behind closed doors. This is something that started Quite recently, I mean, uh, you know, when I was a boy, the idea of being uh, trans, there was no transsexual or transgender, it was just transvestite. That was the catch-all term. Uh, it was either something funny like, uh, I don't know if you watched All in the Family, but the character Beverly LaSalle, or something crazy like Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, but now it's this whole niche issue and an interest group, and especially for kids, I really don't think 
there's any kid who naturally wants to <laughs> wants to change his or her sex. Uh, that this to me sounds very very coached, uh, and uh, it, it's unfortunate. But this does seem to be a problem that's a racket, which is say which is to say it's been created, and then somebody creates a solution for the problem, and people who don't like this situation are essentially threatened. Yeah, when when I was coming up, uh, we called them cross dressers. Mm-hmm. You know, and the probably the most prominent example I can think of was Klinger on the Mash. Oh, of course, you know, and he did it to try to get a, uh, a psychiatric discharge from the military. <laughs> so that was the view that we had of people that wore other people's clothes. You know, and uh, you know it's just bizarre, but. Um, it is for reasons I can't wrap my mind around, and I just don't know the answer to this kind of call celebra of the left today, you know, and, and what's, what's, but, but I, I have to tell you this whole transgender thing, I know we're kind of getting far afield here, but this is important. Um, I'm a, I'm a personal injury lawyer. Okay. And that usually makes me kind of persona non grata amongst true, real conservative Republicans, right? So, um, <clears throat> but we, and when I say we, trial lawyers are going to put an end to the more radical um, aspects of this transgenderism. See, because if you go back to when when gender reassignment surgery was, was pioneered, mm-hmm. And from that point in the late 60s, I believe, up until now, up until very recently, mm-hmm. um, if a person needed wanted g- gender reassignment surgery, mm-hmm. they had to rigorously qualify for it with their hormones, yes. psychiatrically, all these other things. And the vast majority of people who applied for it, who wanted it done, were denied. Uh-huh. The vast majority. And then in the last uh, decade, all of these uh, medical institutions have jettisoned all of those rules and and just operating on children. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, and the lawsuits are coming. They're they're coming now because they're they're mutilating permanently, irrecu- irrevocably, children who were not capable of consenting, who didn't know. Uh, and could not have comprehended what was being done to them, you know, and um, and it's just if you if you deal with any of these and just read about these people who come out of this and then realize that their their gender was changed and it shouldn't have been, it is just absolutely horrific what these people go through, and um, the, all of these medical institutions that have allowed these surgeries to take place when there's no by by jettisoning jettisoning or ignoring the standards that had not changed. Mm-hmm. They just quit applying them, you know, <clears throat> and operating on people they shouldn't have. They're going to wind up, uh, they're going to wind up getting hammered by juries over it's what's going to happen. And it's so, going to stop. So I was going to say, so essentially the strategy is that you and, and lawyers like you would make it so performing these surgeries is unprofitable. And eventually I, I presume you want some sort of legal precedent that it cannot be performed except under certain circumstances. Well, particularly on minors. Now, you know, adults can, they, they'll, they'll have more, uh, uh, 
you know, liberty to do what they of want. Of course, I meant minors, but yeah, yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. As long as the people are mentally sound, which is part of the problem. And in fact, you know, you mentioned Buffalo Bill. <clears throat> Go back and watch uh, Silence of the Lambs, because you remember Hannibal Lecter says, oh, there's it, it, one scene, he's talking about Buffalo Bill, and he's telling um, uh, Jodie Foster's character, Mm -hmm. Oh, there's three places that do this gender reassignment. Yes. I'd be willing to bet you that all three of them refuse to, to allow him to have it. That was the point of the film. That's, yeah, yeah, yep. Because he didn't qualify. He was mm -hmm. not mentally stable enough to have the surgery. And they're, they're doing them now to people who should have no business having this, the, these things done to them. And it's, uh, it's a travesty. Now, if you've ever known anybody, there are people mm -hmm. who are gender have are, are born like for instance you know hermaphrodites male and female genitalia and they've got they got these problems that in in pop culture that we used people used to make fun of them if you remember pat pat skits from saturday night live uh -huh. you know and they're always trying to figure out if pat's a guy or a girl you know uh -huh. there are people like that and uh and that's a that's a very difficult thing and those people you know your heart goes out to them but we don't need to create people like that mm -hmm. and convince people they're like that when they're not tomboys, you know, a girl, we call them tomboys. when I was a kid, mm -hmm. a girl that liked to get, get dirty and go outside. And, you know, today, if you're in the wrong place, somebody would try to change your gender. Absolutely. No, I called them tomboys as well. That was basically universal, at least in the U S and I imagine Canada. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's a crazy situation. And of course I, I said, people, I meant kids. Thank you for specifying that. Oh, yeah. no but problem. no, I would say that even for adults, there should be a rigorous uh, procedure that you have to go through. I'd rather an institution said it than the law, but if it has to be a state statute, then that's fine. But I do think for kids, there's really no legitimate purpose in gender transitioning. No, I, I think that you, you have to allow uh, a person to reach the age of adulthood where they can make that decision for themselves. And, and there has to be some independently uh, verified criteria like that used to be used about hormones and about mental health. There, there, no one who's mentally challenged in some fashion should have a surgery done that mutilates their gender. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that's just not going to turn out good. You know, and I, I can't, I just, sometimes I have to tell you, I can't wrap my mind around why something's controversial. You know, the idea <clears throat> that children shouldn't have gender reassignment surgery and certainly that they shouldn't uh, gender transition with their parents being kept in the dark about it by school administrators, that the idea that that's, those are controversial positions to some people to me just is literally baffling yeah it really is it's it's crazy but uh we live in a crazy age now this will be the last chapter i read from uh your book people know where to get it uh once again it is titled fake news exposed uh you could it came out in november of 2023 you can find it on amazon and on daniel's website uh and the there's a whole bunch more stuff especially pertaining to covid but this article uh 
this chapter, sorry, 25, is titled The USA Leads the World in Mass Shootings. The fake news, the United States is number one in the world in mass shootings. Who pushed the fake news? The Los Angeles Times published the narrative with its August 24th, 2015 article titled Why the U.S. is Number One in Mass Shootings. You write, the article relies on a study by the University of Alabama criminologist Adam Lankford to link per capita gun ownership rates with mass shootings. Naturally, the American gun culture is blamed in the article. Newsweek weighed in on the topic in an article on August the 23rd of 2015. Study, mass shootings, exceptionally American problem. You write, naturally, CNN joined the chorus with this article from October 5th of 2017, why the U.S. has the most mass shootings. You also write, once again, the study by criminologist Adam Lankford, formed the basis for the article. The New York Times did its part two to boost this narrative with this piece on November the 7th of 2017. Why does the U.S. have so many mass shootings? Researchers clear guns. You write, all of these articles rely on the same study by criminologist Adam Lankford. The gist of each of these articles is 